All right, the rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 will be beginning in verse 5 this morning. Romans 5, verse 8. I'm excited um, to get to open this passage with you this morning. All right, as you turn there, let me just give you kind of a hypothetical. All right? Imagine for me. Imagine that I call you and I say, hey, I'm stranded at Sueno right there off Arapahoe because my car stopped working. Can you come help me? You get this phone call. You roll up. You're a good friend. You roll up. You ask me what I think is wrong. I start to tell you. I say, I don't know, what I, I don't know what's wrong. I mean, there's gas in the car. It's a new car. I just got the tires changed. Everything seems to be going all right. You get into the cab of the car. You turn the key. Nothing happens. So you go around, you lift up the hood, and you open it up, and you realize there's no battery, right? You immediately can identify what the problem is. Our vehicles need energy. I'm stranded there not because the car isn't working properly, because it's missing something it desperately needs to work properly. There's no battery. And the Christian life is similar in many ways to this, except the engine of the Christian life doesn't run off a battery that can run dry. The Christian life is empowered and driven by the inexhaustible presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the most neglected realities of the Christian life for many of us is that the Christian life is a necessarily spirit-filled life. The Christian life is a necessarily spirit-filled life. And I think it's one of the most neglected realities because if we're honest, many of us do not know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Many of us really don't know how to consider or to think or to meditate on the Holy Spirit. Many of us don't know who the Holy Spirit is. We don't know what the Holy Spirit does. We don't know how the Holy Spirit is operating or operative in the Christian life. And subsequently, we just kind of keep it out of sight, out of mind. It's kind of one of those things that seems just better left unaddressed for fear that we might address it wrongly. But today, we're going to explore a passage that has a lot to do with the role of the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to look at Romans 8, 5 through 11 today, and I want to explore what does a spirit-filled life look like, because the Christian life is a spirit-filled life. That's what it is. So let's explore it together. I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 5 through 11. After I'll read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond with thanks be to God. The reason we do that isn't just some cold, dead ritual, it's because We're grateful that God hasn't left his people in silence, that he's spoken to us. It's a way of communicating that thanksgiving together. So let me read Romans 8, beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, two things that I want us to look at today. 
The first one is what's on your mind, and the second, what's in your heart. What's on your mind, what's in your heart. Those are the two big questions in this passage. And in many ways, it would be great to kind of reverse engineer this passage because you really need the truth of verses 9 through 11 to make sense of the truth of verses 5 through 8. But Paul gives us this passage in this way for a purpose. And I think he wants us to leave verse 8 with a question, which is, okay, well, how do I set my mind on the things of the Spirit? And then he gives us the engine, the engine. So I want us to first ask the question, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? Because what's on your mind matters significantly. What's on your mind is one of the clearest indicators that you have of really what you think the fundamental order or orientation, worship, love, desire of your life is. What's on your mind matters significantly. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the, what's it say? Flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the, what's it say? The Spirit. That's right. So Paul is saying what we set our mind on is an indication of what or who we love. What we give our attention to is an indication of what we worship. I've quoted her many times. The poet Mary Oliver has said, attention is the beginning of devotion." What you set your mind to, what you give your attention to, the thing that consumes your thinking and your thoughts is a reliable indicator of what you worship, of what you love, or of who you worship and who you love. Now, Paul's setting up a contrast in verses 5 through 8. Do you see it? Look at it. He's setting up a contrast between two ways of living, living life according to the flesh and living life according to the spirit. Now, remember when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about your physical body. Paul is not some sort of kind of a super spiritualist who believes that the body is bad and the spirit is good. Paul, when he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about your physical body. God created you as a unity of body and soul. We don't have to be ashamed, embarrassed, or upset about the fact that we live embodied lives. So what does Paul mean when he talks about the flesh? Well, he's talking about the desires of of sin. He's talking about the brokenness of sin's nature. He's talking about the way that sin has shaped the way that we live, the way that we love, the things that we want, and the ways that we move towards them. So life according to the flesh is a life that's lived, driven by sin, and headed towards death. That's the goal of the life according to the flesh. It's driven by sin. Life according to the flesh is compelled towards that which is unrighteous. Now, we are all born into this world living life according to the flesh. That's everybody's fundamental posture as they enter this world. Paul has said it a number of ways, a number of times throughout Romans. We are born into this world with a nature that is broken. And he's given us a lot of different word pictures for it. He's given a lot of different phrases for it. And he's done this because he is trying to be emphatic that we are born into this world living life according to the flesh. That we are by nature separated from God. That no one seeks after God. No one is righteous by created nature. We are born into this world broken. So we are born into this world already on a path. And that path is driven by sin and it's headed towards death. That's the fundamental orientation. When we're born into this world, the map and the destination that's imprinted on our heart 
is a path of brokenness that leads towards death. This is life according to the flesh, driven by sin and headed towards death. But there is another way. There is another way. There is life lived according to the Spirit. And if life lived according to the flesh is driven by sin and headed towards death, life according to the Spirit is driven by the Holy Spirit and it's headed towards life. Not just life for now, but life forever. So Paul is setting up these two paths, this contrast, and and he'll do it many different ways uh, throughout Romans and throughout his letters. But these two destinations are marked by two different paths. Life according to the flesh is lived on our terms. This is saying it's my way or the highway. Life according to the flesh is saying I'm going to live in the way that I want to live. My preferences, my truth, my feelings, my desires, those are going to be the things that govern the decisions I make and the directions I take on the path that's lived according to the flesh. Now we're born into this world on this path. This path is marked by a few signposts. It's marked by, marked by hostility towards God. Hostility towards God. Romans 1 says that we're born actively suppressing the truth of God. Knowing the truth of God, being surrounded by his power displayed, and yet still acting as if really we are the center of the story and we are in control of the narrative. Life according to the flesh is marked by hostility towards God, by rejecting God's rule for your own, by saying, yeah, 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 it's fine to have a little bit of God, but at the end of the day, it's really what I want, my will and my way. Life according to the flesh is a life that remixes the Lord's prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be my name, my kingdom come, my will be done in the way that I want it. Life lived according to the flesh is a life lived according to one's own terms and preferences. I know best. I know what I want to do. I'm going to live that way. It's marked by sin and it's headed towards death. Not just death for now, but death forever. But life according to the Spirit. Life according to the Spirit is marked by faithfulness to God. Life according to the Spirit is not living your life on your terms. It's living your life on God's terms. It's acknowledging and submitting yourself to saying, I am not the best judge for what life is supposed to be like. It's confessing to God, not my will be done, but your will be done. It's acknowledging that we are living in the midst of a kingdom that is greater than ourselves And worshiping a king who is not us. It's life lived according to God's terms. You see, Paul says in verse 5, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And then this phrase, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I want to just be emphatic about what I think Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, in very clear terms, there is not a third option. There's not a third option. There's not a middle way. There's no lukewarm position. You will either live with your mind set on the things of the Spirit, or you will live with your mind set on the things of the flesh, 
Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are in open hostility to God. They cannot submit to God's law. Paul is once again presenting a problem. A problem that we cannot resolve by works. That we are born on the wrong path. We do not know the directions to the right one. And even if we know the directions, we cannot get there on our own. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there has to be a change. There has to be a change. Because if what we set our mind on matters, but we're born into this world, and it's impossible for us to set our mind on the things of the Spirit by nature, then there's got to be a change. We've been presented with an irresolvable problem that we cannot fix, that we cannot solve. And I think that this is what Paul is getting at in verses 9 through 11. In verses 5 through 8, he's pressing you with the question, what's on your mind? What is your mind set to? Where does your attention and your devotion and your worship and your love go? Let me just ask you some questions in light of this. Because I think what Paul wants you to feel provoked by is he wants you to ask these questions. And then based off of your response, he wants to kind of illuminate a check engine light on your dashboard. Okay, so let me just give you some questions to consider. And they're worthless if you're dishonest with yourself. Just some questions to think about. What do you dwell on? What do you dwell on? What gets the bulk of your attention? What gets the bulk of your attention? What do you think about? What shapes your imagination? What's the central reality that guides the decisions you make? Now, these questions are worthless. They're just subpoints in a sermon unless you really reckon with your heart before God and wonder, what do I think about? What is my mind set to? Is it what I want or is it what God wants? And based off of the way you answer those questions, you might see a check engine light illuminate on your dashboard. Huh. I wonder what really has my heart. I wonder what really has my worship, my devotion. What you set your mind on is an indication of what you worship. I once heard Tim Keller in a lecture say, tell me what occupies your daydreams and I'll tell you what you worship. What our mind goes to is a reliable indicator of what we love. No one drifts towards holiness. No one. No one drifts towards meditating on God and his wonderful works. It requires intention. It requires attention. It requires purpose. What we think about and dwell on is a reflection of what or who we love. And it is a marker of what path we are on. So I want you to be honest with yourself. Do you delight in meditating on God? Do you delight in considering God and his works? Do you? Do you love to think about God? Do you love to hear from God's word? Do you love to gather with God's people? 
Do you love to speak and listen to God in prayer? If the answer to this is yes, praise God for the work he's done in your life. For some of you, you might be like, there was a time in which that was true. Okay, then let's figure out how are we straying from the path? But for others of us, you might go, there's never been a time where that's been the case. There's never been a time when it felt like the desires and the burdens of my heart were fundamentally oriented towards God. And if that's the case, then it is time to really reckon with the question, have I encountered God? Have I encountered him? Do I know him? More importantly, does he know me? Am I found in Jesus? These are incredibly important questions. We should realize that even when we are eager to pursue dwelling on God, the fact remains that we are born with the wrong engine. We're born broken from the start. We're born with a hard heart. We're born in the flesh with our mindset on the things of the flesh. Paul gives us five through eight because he wants you, just like he wanted the audience in Rome, to be going, huh, do I, is my mind set on the spirit or is it set on the things of the flesh? Now, where we go with that question is crucial because where Satan would have you go with that question is shame. That's where the enemy would take you with that question. That's what he's eager to do, is to take that question and your honesty with it and go, okay, great, you answered wrongly, you've fallen short, you're out. You're no good. That's what the enemy would have you do. But God's word takes it in a different direction. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Paul asks the question, what's on your mind? Because he wants to get to the more fundamental question, what's in your heart? And he knows that what you end up thinking about is a good opportunity. It can be a good yellow flag, a good check engine light to go, I need to really wonder and kind of figure out what's going on in my heart. So he asks the question, what's on your mind in verses 5 through 8? Because he wants to get to what's in your heart. What is your heart before God? I mean, he, he reaffirms, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's talking to the church as if they are the church. He's talking to the people in Rome as if they are Christians in this part. He's presuming it for the sake of argument. He's saying, listen, if the spirit of God dwells in you, then you are a part of what God has on the pathway to life. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, then even if you were born broken, even if you were born dead in sin, even if it feels like the rivers and waters of death or despair or sin are to overtake you, the spirit of resurrection power of Christ Jesus will triumph over them. Paul wants you to consider what is in your heart. When we're born again, because that's what he's talking about here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, right? 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. How do we move from being born in sin, born into death, to life with God in the Spirit? We must be born again. We must be born again. This is what the theologians will call regeneration. Regeneration. It is the activity and work of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit of God enters into our lives and replaces a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, replaces a dead heart with a living heart. And I don't mean the blood pumping organ in our chest. I mean the heart as the spiritual center of the human person, as the soul of the human person. This is the work of regeneration where the Holy Spirit enters into God's people and rebirths them, no longer dead, but now alive. And the first fruits of this regeneration, the first fruits of being born again are faith and repentance. Faith that that cries out, God save me, rescue me, that receives from God the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument of our salvation and it is the instrument that the Holy Spirit provides with the new heart that's given to us in regeneration. We are born into this world with a broken, dead, concrete heart. And it is going to lead us to the depths of death unless it is dealt with. And God, because he is gracious and merciful, he deals with that broken and dead heart. And how does he deal with it? By the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. By inviting us through the work and activity of the Holy Spirit to be born again. We've said many times that faith, Faith is this gift of God that God gives us so that we can give ourselves to God. We're born into this world lacking the capacity to give ourselves to God. We cannot do it. Even if we're told this is the list of what you must do, we cannot do it. We cannot measure up. We cannot give faith and faithfulness to God by nature. But the Spirit, when He softens our heart and He gives us a living heart, He gives us the gift of faith. The gift of faith is given to us so that we can give ourselves back to God. It's dynamic. It's active. It's not just a one-time event. It's an ongoing reality in our life. And it's a reality that is shaped by the road of repentance. Because repentance is one of the fundamental gifts the Spirit gives us in the new birth. Not just faith in God, but repentance. Repentance, the road of giving ourselves back to God, is marked by turning away from sin and turning towards God, by turning away from setting our mind on the things of the flesh and turning it back to setting it on the things of the Spirit. You see, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that allows us to set our mind on the things of the Spirit and not the things of the flesh. And it is the ongoing work of the Spirit that convicts us when we have been setting our minds on the things of the flesh and not the things of the Spirit. So what's on your mind is a reliable indicator of what's in your heart because you cannot set your mind on the things of the Spirit apart from the work of the Spirit of God and you will not do it in a repeated and regular way because your heart will drift to what it knows by nature. And if it's a broken dead heart, what it knows by nature is unrighteousness. And if it's a new and living heart, what it knows now by grace is the righteousness of God. What's on your mind? What's on your mind is a reliable indicator of what's in your heart. When we experience the work of regeneration, the Holy Spirit takes up residence 
He indwells us. He lives within us. God, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, he makes his home in our lives. Now, what does this do? What is the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives? Let me give you four things here. Four things I think we see in 9 through 11. The Holy Spirit wakes us up. He makes us alive. We were spiritually dead, slumbering in sin, and yet God makes us alive. The Holy Spirit wakes us up. The Holy Spirit gives us new desires. The Holy Spirit gives us new desires. These desires are what Paul is saying are the things of the Spirit. These are new desires. Have you experienced new desires? Do your desires look differently from those around you who are not followers of Jesus? Because if they don't, you'd want to grapple with the question, do I experience different desires from those who don't follow Jesus? If not, why? And if I do, what does it mean to live those out in a way that's compelling and faithful? Right? The Holy Spirit wakes us up, makes us alive. The Holy Spirit gives us new desires. Gives us new desires. The Holy Spirit gives us new motives. We're no longer trying to obey God to earn righteousness. We're now looking to obey God to enjoy all that God has for us in Jesus. We've acknowledged that by sin and by nature, we cannot please God. When we're given a new heart, we now have new motives. We have now new intentions, new thoughts. Why? Because the Spirit is operating within us, rejuvenating, refreshing, restoring, rebuilding. Now, the Holy Spirit does these things. Wakes us up, makes us alive, gives us new desires, gives us new motives. The Spirit does this by convicting us and by enlivening us, convicting us. When we sin, we are supposed to experience conviction. Now, let me caution us. If you begin to feel that you are in a pattern of sin, and you're no longer experiencing conviction of that sin, that a callousness has set in on your heart. And it requires us to humbly confess and to come before God and say, God, my heart has become numb to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Truthfully, I think many of us choose to live Christian lives that are not marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit because we've grown numb to the presence of the Holy Spirit and we don't want to deal with the thing that has numbed our hearts. We know that we're going to have to give something up. We've chosen to operate in some meaningful way in a corner of our life in accordance with our own terms or our own preferences. We've chosen to nurse some kind of secret sin that we think will satisfy us. We've chosen to do something on our own, in our own way, and it's not working. And instead of dealing with that, we just say, you know what, I'll just kind of live numb to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you where that heads. It leads to death, and the whole pathway is marked by a kind of joyless obedience. And you will find the Christian life enduringly boring, incredibly hard because you will be like the person who shows up to help me at Sueño and instead of saying, let's go get a battery for this truck, you'll say, you know what? Let's just drive it with me pushing it from now on. It will never work. It's not winsome. It's not persuasive. It is a life that you will find both dull and depressing 
because you will be trying to live a spirit-filled life without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Your heart will have grown numb to these things. The Spirit is there to convict us of sin. Conviction of sin is not legalism. Conviction of sin is not shame. Conviction of sin is divine surgery on malevolent and malicious and toxic parts of our life. It is there for that purpose. The Holy Spirit is doing that work. The Spirit identifies the places in our lives where we are looking to live independent from God, and he says, that's not right. Turn away from that. But conviction isn't the only thing the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit also enlivens. The Spirit quickens us, is what the old theologians would have said. The Spirit awakens us to what moves us towards what is good, true, and beautiful. The Spirit doesn't just convict us. The Spirit encourages us. The Spirit doesn't just exhort us. The Spirit enlivens us. He readies us. He prepares us. He he makes us primed, so to speak, to receive not just what God has to say about where our lives are out of whack, but the goodness of God in blessing us with the joy of Jesus. Now consider this. Verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. How does God make us alive? By the power of resurrection. The spirit-filled life that Paul is talking about here is a life that's marked by resurrection power. It's a life that's marked by the activity of the Holy Spirit. And when we have been made alive by the Spirit of God, we are invited daily into fellowship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, we will never do this perfectly, not in this life. Not until the time of glorification and the world to come. But in this world, we are called to set with a new foundation and intention and an attention to the things of the Spirit. To set our mind on what God has said is good. And in order for us to reckon with where we are here, we have to be honest with ourselves. The activity of the Spirit is one of the principal ways we experience the fruit of genuine salvation. So let me ask you. Have you experienced the work of the Spirit in your life? Have you? Have you experienced the work of the Spirit? It might look like this. Do you or have you experienced conviction of sin? Not just shame for being caught, but genuine conviction of sin. Like what David says in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. He tells God, against you and you only have I sinned. That's what conviction of sin looks like. Not, gosh, I really don't like the consequences of getting caught. It is a reckoning with the fact that we have sinned against a holy God. Do you, have you experienced conviction of sin? Do you experience holy desires? Do you experience holy desires? Desire to fellowship with God in prayer. Desire to hear God's word. Desire to love God's people. Desire to tell God's story. Do you experience holy desires? If you don't, that's a check engine light. Where am I at with the Lord if I do not experience desires for the things God says are beneficial and best? What does that mean? Do the things of God excite you? Do the things of the flesh offend you? Do you demonstrate the kind of love that God has shown you to others? Or are you indifferent to them? These are important questions to wrestle with. 
because they are indications of where our heart is before God. Things that we are to grapple with, to wonder about. And I want to exhort you and encourage you with this. Could you live the same Christian life you're living right now if the Holy Spirit didn't indwell you? Are you living the kind of Christian life that is absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit? Is your life a kind of life that just would not make sense unless you were able to say the power of the resurrection by the presence of the Holy Spirit indwells me? Because that's what Paul is inviting us into. Not a Christian life where the Spirit is a nice bonus. Not a Christian life where the Spirit is an added extra. Not a Christian life where the Spirit is kind of an icing on a cake we never eat. But the kind of Christian life that looks absolutely unintelligible to you and to anyone else in your life apart from the belief in the reality that the Holy Spirit indwells you. I think if we're honest, I think if I'm honest, many times, many of us settle for something that feels cute and controllable. And I'm not surprised we grow bored with that. I'm not surprised it's not persuasive. I'm not surprised that we find ourselves in pits of despair. We're trying to push a car down the road with no battery. And it's an incredible weight to shoulder. And it's a weight we weren't meant to bear. I want to pray for us. And I want you to pray with me. I want you to just, just take a moment right now and just, just take a second to be honest with yourself. Do you experience the activity of the Spirit in your life? How? When? In what ways? We do not have to keep waiting to be honest with God. He knows where you're at today. He knows where your heart is. He, know what your mind, he knows what your mind is set on. Be truthful with God today. And when you are, you will find he has no shame for you, no condemnation for you. All he has for you is grace. Receive it. Drink deeply from it. You do not have to keep living at arm's length from God. Father, we come before you and we confess that sometimes it is easy for us to buy into an illusion of the Christian life that is cute, comfortable, controllable. 
a life that we just baptize in your name, but is really a life lived on our own terms. And I ask God that you would confront us, challenge us, and in that confrontation and challenge that you would invite us in, as you always do, into the bountiful, inexhaustible grace that is in Jesus Christ. I pray for Christians in the room who have learned to live numb to the presence of the power of the Spirit. I pray you would break through it, that you would break through the callousness of heart with grace, with truth, with righteousness, that they would respond in confession and repentance and humility, and that you would receive them into the power and presence of a Spirit-filled life. I pray that for those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, God, who have learned to live next to the fire of Christianity, but never really enjoying its warmth, I pray, God, that you would melt the heart of stone and you would give the gift of faith. As we come to your table, God, we remember that we come to the broken body and shed blood of Christ our Lord. And for that, we give thanks. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.